Thank you for streaming the audio messages of the Fountain Church. My wife, Jackie, and I, we're the lead pastors here. My name is Matt, by the way. And uh, we're the lead pastors here at Fountain, and it's, it's such a privilege to do what we do. And um, thank you for being with us. Uh, we, we truly don't take that lightly. Um, and we're, we're actually wrapping up a series entitled The Table. Uh, I've had so much fun preaching this message over the last few weeks. And it was kind of one of those series that the Lord drops on you. Uh, it was a little bit spontaneous. I wasn't, I didn't, we were supposed to go into a whole different sermon series. And the Lord said, no, I want you to stay here for three weeks. And and it's just been so rich. It's been so good. So if you've missed any of them, you can go back and listen online. And uh, I think you'll be encouraged and blessed by them. But, um, but today I, I want to talk to you uh, from the subject a little bit about this idea that the table, the, the, the table is not meant for you, but for others. It's not only for you, but for others. The table is a place of giving. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for these next few moments that we share together, I pray that you would open up our hearts to see you clearly, Jesus. Um, as I prayed earlier, God, we're not here to just kind of go through the routine of church on a Sunday, but rather we want to we want to hear you clearly. We want you to speak to our hearts, God. We want to encounter you in a real way. And so we just pray, Lord, that you would speak to us right where we're at, that you help us to get outside of ourselves today. I know some of us, we've come here, we're like, man, I need a word for me. And Lord, I know that it's going to be a word for all of us. But help us to think outside of us in the process. In Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. Amen, amen and amen. Well, uh, this, this last year, one of the things that my wife and I, we've done is we've learned that with three kids, outings are expensive. And so what we've done over the last, I think this last year was our first year. We actually got season passes to Great America and Gilroy Gardens. Anybody ever been to Gilroy Gardens? It's a great little spot for kids. Uh, but on one particular day that we, we went there, a uh, beautiful day, sun was shining, it was like a perfect summer day. Uh, as we were wrapping up our day, we, we ended up on this playground where a few families were hanging out and there were kids running around. And it was one of those playgrounds where there's a lot of stuff to do and a kid could get lost really easily. And so I, I noticed one little kid, he, he was really excited, he was playing around, my girls were swinging with him on the bars, and then all of a sudden I saw his posture change. You know, when you see a little kid's posture go from like, yeah, excited to, like, where's my mom? Where's my dad? So I, I let him go for a couple of minutes. I thought, hey, maybe he's just, you know, maybe, I don't know what's going on with this kid, right? And so I, I, I let him just, I kind of watch him for a couple of minutes. Then I just see it, like, where's my mom? And, and you know, you kind of get that as a parent. My heart instantly goes out to this kid. And so I, I go up and I say, hey, you know, how are you? Are you looking for your, your parents? Or who did you come here with today? He says, Mama. Right? So he's just, he starts crying. And, and so I grab Jackie. And I'm like, man, we got to find this kid's parents. And so, you know, we're, we're kind of looking around the, the, the play yard because it's this, this playground. It's just weird how it's laid out. So we're looking around. We're like, man, we don't see his parents. And all of a sudden we see mom coming around the corner. Like she came like, I don't know where she came from. But all I heard was, mijo. And, uh. And, and the, the, the reaction between both son and mom in this moment was instant relief, instant relief. And it, it brought me back to when I was a kid. I, I, I remember being in like department stores or the mall, and, and they would announce a kid's name over the loudspeaker. Like, if you've lost a child, you know, we have vents at customer service, right? And so, so you would see that. Sometimes I was that kid. 
Because I'd wander around in the store, I'd hide in the clothes and all that good stuff, right? And my mom couldn't find me, I'd lose my mom. End up at customer service, like, hey, mom, my mom's like, baby. And, and you see this, this sense of instant relief that the frantic search, it, it's over. Like, like we've been reunited. And even if you're not, even if you're in the store and you don't have a kid, there's still a relief. Like you're kind of celebrating, the loss was found, like everybody gets excited. Sometimes you'd hear, you know, a clap as the workers bringing the kid over. I mean, it's, just, it's, it's a pretty important moment when somebody that's lost is found. But unfortunately, as much as we do that for little kids physically, when people come home spiritually, sometimes we don't get that excited. So sometimes even, even our search for the lost kid, right? Spiritually, it's like, oh, they'll find their way. It's a long road ahead of them. Right? And, and sometimes there's not an, an aggressive pursuit of those who are lost. And I think one of the disappointing parts is this kind of even creeps into the church a little bit. Like, like the, the, the number one place that should be on mission to reach those who are far from God is sometimes the place that is least on mission. And, and I, I was thinking as, as I was putting this, this message together, I thought, you know, sometimes we, we kind of treat people that are far from God almost like that person that we cannot stand that comes to our house, maybe a family member, maybe an uncle or a cousin that comes over every Thanksgiving or Christmas, and it's that guy or that lady, right? And you, and you got to get prayed up before they come. You got to get prayed up, filled up, ready to be taken up because you know you're going to be pressed. Come on, it's so true. It's so true because, like, reaching people that are far from God, it can, it can be messy. And so it sounds really cool in church, like, let's go reach people. But then you actually get into it. It's, it can be a little bit messy. And it's, it's, it's not even that popular, I think. There's a lot of churches that and it's, just, it's just not a priority to reach people. It's, it's like, it's, it's okay if we just kind of have our holy huddle around the table on a Sunday morning. Even though there's a world out there that desperately needs Jesus, we have the hope that we have the answer and the hope that they need. But we're like, we're just content at our table. Like, hey, church was good today. I'm going to go eat some lunch. We're going to go home and we get into our Monday and we're just going to do it all over again until Sunday. And, and I, I think it's, it's funny that, that even sometimes when, when people who are far from God are, are, are coming into churches, it, they can feel really uncomfortable and awkward. So if, listen, if you don't go to church, you, you found a safe house here. And we're, we're so grateful that you're in the building today. But, but it, it's just amazing to me that, man, how many people don't like to actually reach those who are far from God? How many followers of Jesus are just so content at the table when there's a world full of lost people out there? And, and Jesus experienced this reality in Luke chapter 15. And what he did was um, he, he, he was preaching to, to several people. He was, he was sharing some things. And Luke chapter 15, verse 1, look what we find. It says, now all the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around to listen to Jesus. And so the Pharisees and the scribes, which were the religious leaders of his day, began to grumble. This man welcomes sinners, and he eats with them. Like, like he doesn't only welcome, he's, he eats with them. Now, you got to understand, in, in this ancient culture, for these religious leaders, the way that they interpreted the law this was a big no-no. No sinners at the table. Right? They, they were considered unwholesome. They were considered not, not put together. And, and basically it was this. 
We can coexist with people that are far from God, just don't give them a seat. But that couldn't have been more further from the heart of God. I mean, that, that, that is like the antithesis of the heart of God. Yeah, this was the state of the church in Jesus' day. And so Jesus said, okay, well, let me tell you a, a couple of stories. So Jesus tells three parables. He tells the story of a lost sheep. He tells the story of a lost coin. And then he tells the story of two lost sons. You guys may have heard it as the prodigal son, but it's really a tale of two lost sons. One was lost outside of the house, just kind of living wild and crazy, but one was also lost religiously inside the house, yet was still just as disconnected from the father than the son that was wayward. And, and it's really interesting. We don't, we don't have time to dive into that story, but I, but I want to look at these first two parables, and we're going to start with the sheep. Jesus looks, uh, Jesus addresses the crowd. He says, what if a man among you, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and loses one of them, does not leave the 99 in the pasture and goes after the one that is lost until he finds it? That's why here at Fountain Church, one of our core values of our church is we will always leave the 99 for the one. Yeah. And, and a good shepherd, when they leave the 99, it's not like, see, I don't love you anymore, pursuing the lost one. No, a good shepherd will always make sure that other shepherds come around and make sure that the 99 are, are secure as he or she goes after the lost one. And so, so that, that's just who we are as a church because Jesus goes on to say when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. He's pumped up. He's excited. And he comes home and he calls together his friends and neighbors to tell them, rejoice with me for I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, I tell you that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous ones who do not need to repent. Now, we all know that what he's referring to is these 99 that don't think they need to repent. Like, that's a joke because we all fall short of God's glory. But Jesus is making a point. He's saying, hey, man, I celebrate when these people are coming home. When they're gathering around to hear and to listen, like, I'm, I'm pumped about that. But there was a little innuendo in there toward the religious leaders that I don't think they caught on the first story. Like, Jesus is saying, don't you get it? that good shepherds go after lost sheep. And here you are, shepherds in the house of Israel, and you could care less. You, it doesn't sound like you're being very good shepherds because there's so many lost, and when they come, you grumble, and you're frustrated because they're messy. They're not wholesome. So he says, well, you guys aren't really catching it there. Let me, let me tell you another story. So he goes on and he says this. He says, or what woman who has 10 silver coins and loses one of them does not light a lamp, sweep her house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls together her friends and neighbors to say, rejoice with me for I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you that there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. So now Jesus probably has their attention a little bit because these guys love their money. So it was, it was a little bit uh, more intriguing to them. Hey, a coin is a lot more value. Who cares about a sheep? But a coin, yeah, that's worth the pursuit. That, that might even be worth the celebration. But there's still an undercurrent here. See, a, a coin does not get lost on its own, but rather is misplaced by the person who was holding the purse. Right? The, the coin is, it, it's, it just doesn't like get up out of the purse and like wander away. No, no, the person misplaces it. As if to say, here you guys are, and 
coins just don't leave. Maybe if you guys were shepherding people the way you were supposed to, there wouldn't be so many lost people. But so many have been misplaced. And we don't have shepherds that have a heart to go after them. I think Jesus was saying, man, you guys are more like the shepherds of Ezekiel that Ezekiel talks about. These shepherds that are, rather than lost seeking, they're self-seeking. And, and I think, you know, the heart of God is just expressed in this over and over and over, the celebratory reality of God pursuing lost people. But for these religious leaders, there was a disconnect. There was, there was, there was a holy huddle, but there was no mission. There was no mission to reach lost people. And, and we see this all throughout Scripture. And it, a lot of times it has to do with, with the Pharisees, with the religious leaders, with the religious people. I just had such a problem with this. There's another story. Jesus is reclining at a table of a Pharisee's house. Uh, it says, one of, then one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to eat with him. Again, Jesus is at the table with a religious leader. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a sinful woman from the town learned that Jesus was dining there, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. Now, this, this was really expensive. Uh, perfume was, was an expensive commodity. It wasn't like you can just go to Macy's or, you know, get an oil or something and dilute it. And No, this was, this was a, a, a commodity that, that was worth a lot. It says that she stood behind him, as, as she stood behind him at his, feet weep, weep, at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair. Then she kissed his feet and anointed them with the perfume. Now, many scholars believe that the two parables or the two stories that Jesus tells, not a parable, but two stories that Jesus tells um, in regards to the women with the alabaster jar. We find them and we find this story in all of the gospels. Many scholars believe that, that this is two separate women, but I think you can paint a pretty good argument that it's, it's really the same story, but we don't, we, we don't have time to get into that. So the scripture continues and it says, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who this is and what kind of woman is touching him, for she is a sinner. And so the Pharisee's sitting in his chair, and he's just like, oh, my goodness. I knew it. And, and, and to, to accuse him, right, if you only knew. Come on, like, we can judge this guy so easily. But how many of us have sat there? Kanye West? No way. No way. God can reach Kanye. Right? So, so we, we can judge the Pharisees so easily, but we'll find, if we're honest, that there might be a little Pharisee in us. Like, like is somebody too far away for God to really get a hold of them? And so Jesus said, no, you, you missed it because I know what you're thinking. Like, you're thinking this, but I know what you're thinking because I know what you're thinking because I'm God. So, I, so let me explain it to you before you even ask the question. Let me just break it down for you. So Jesus goes on. He says, in turning to the woman, he said, uh, and, and turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? When I entered your house, you did not give me water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not greet me with a kiss, but she has not stopped kissing my feet since I arrived. How many of you guys know feet were a little bit dirty in this day? 
You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, because her many sins have been forgiven, she has loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. You know what's so funny? Is that in Christ, we've all been forgiven much. So, so when, you look, when you look at this, the reality is, is we have all been in Christ forgiven of a lot. Now, some of us don't think so. Some of us, we can grab our little blueberries and we're like, I know I'm like kind of bad. But her, she's been forgiven much. Him? Yeah. He should be loving like crazy. But me, you know, I just, I got a couple issues. I'm just not as bad. Now, it's funny, none of us say that, but sometimes we move like that. Because all of us have been forgiven much, but can I tell you, what, what is the difference between that reality is closeness to God. See, see, closeness brings clarity to that reality. Because right now you have two people at the table. You have a woman and you have a religious leader. But only one was close. They're both at the table, but only one was close. Only one really got it. I think you can be in a lot of religious environments, but that does not mean you're close. Man, you can show up to church every week, which we're so grateful that you do, and it's important. But it doesn't mean you're close. And so, so here, this woman, she caught it. And something happens when you and I realize what God has done for us. When you and I realize how much we have been forgiven, oh my goodness, something happens on the inside of our heart. God begins to break us in such a beautiful way. That like this woman, we're like going in our closets. What do I got? Man, give me the most expensive. Let me grab this and let me just give it away. Let me just waste it all on Jesus. It's something happens when you and I get close to God, all of a sudden like the prophet Isaiah, who we fall to our knees and say, woe unto me, a man of unclean lips. There's something about the presence of God that exposes darkness in our life. In, in our life. But the beauty of that is that when God exposes the darkness, the gospel all of a sudden is that much sweeter. It's that much more beautiful that, that he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Like, that's beautiful. So it's like sometimes we don't want to look at that vivid reality, but when you look at that vivid reality of how much you and I have been forgiven, it makes the gospel so much sweeter. Because, listen, there's nothing, there's no sin, there's, there's, there's no one who is too far away or that the cross cannot overcome. The cross, Christ, is enough. And so when we get that reality, it, it really changes everything. That's why our key verse for this, this series has been Matthew chapter 26, verse 26, where Jesus is sitting down with his disciples and his N.T. Wright a theologian, as he said it, he said, when Jesus was getting ready to tell his disciples about his death and crucifixion as it was on the horizon, he didn't give them a theory. He gave them a meal. And he said, sit down, guys, sit at the table. We got to talk. And he said, he said, now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, the first week as we were in this series, we said that, man, the table is a place of blessing. You got to go back and listen to that if you haven't already. He blessed it, and then he broke it. And last week, we talked about how the table is a place for us to bring our brokenness. But there's, there's an extra caveat on the end of this. 
is that when we bring our pain, when we bring our sin, when we bring our brokenness to the table and we experience the grace, the love, the power of God that transforms our life, another breaking happens. All of a sudden, it's in that moment that another breaking happens. And all of a sudden, God begins to break off these things like pride because we see ourselves and what we didn't deserve and what God gave us. He starts to break off our selfishness. He starts to break off our fear, idols. We have no desire for them anymore. He starts to break off our shame and our consumeristic mindset that says it's all about me. He starts to break off our insecurity and it causes us to be a vessel that's broken that as God pours in us, all of a sudden life is flowing through us to the world where we are like, Lord, give me away. See, the table is a place of blessing, it's a place of breaking, but it's also a place of giving. God blesses us, God breaks us, and then he gives us to the world that they might have a seat at the table. So if you're taking notes, you can jot this down, is that the table is a place of giving. It's a place of giving. Now, I remember I talked to one of my heroes this week, and she's actually moving out of state. And, uh, you know, she's probably been through one of the most horrific journeys that I've ever known. Uh, she, her, she lost her daughter, was kidnapped about 30 years ago. Uh, she came down with cancer. Uh, just her story. It's like, if anybody shouldn't believe in God, you know what I'm talking about? Like, you've just been through so much. But, man, she's still just... Mm, just loves the Lord, just hanging in there. I remember talking to her. Uh, I was talking to her this last week and just letting me know she's getting ready to move and just reminded her that, man, you're, you're one of my heroes, man. You've inspired me so much. And she, her, her story has is, is really been a huge part of our church. I remember it was, uh, we, it was our, our first year here at Fountain. It was five years ago. And, uh, and every year what we would do is on the, celebra- or on the memorial day or the day that her daughter was kidnapped, we would host uh, like a, a press conference and we'd have a little time of prayer at the place where her daughter, at the supermarket where her daughter was kidnapped. And so it, it, it was, it was the, the first year that we were here, five years ago, and, and we were there and she said, hey, Matt, come here. She said, I want to show you something. She said, do you see him? Do you see her? Do you see him? I said, yeah. She said, I am so grateful in light of all this pain, what I'm so grateful for is that that man, that woman, and that man for 25 years has not stopped looking for my lost daughter. And when she said that, it was like the Holy Spirit just hit me like a ton of bricks and said, man, that's exactly the kind of church that I've called you to be. That you were to be a church that's on a mission to rescue my lost kids. I mean, it was, it was just such, such a touching moment. And I, I just, you know, I, I know it, it's hard sometimes. It's, it's, our lives are busy and we got our own issues. And so it, it can be really hard to actually put yourself in a position to reach people because, I mean, when people actually need help and you got to help them, it costs you something. Like to go and search for them, it, it's, it's inconvenient. It's, it's not always easy. Sometimes it's scary. 
It can definitely be uncomfortable. And it's just, it, it, there's, a, there's a price to pay. And that's why I think, you know, prioritizing the presence of God is so important to us. Because, again, if closeness is going to reveal the reality of all that God has forgiven us for, like we desperately need that. Meaning this, if we're not prioritizing the presence of God, I'm, I'm going to tell you, it's going to be really hard for us to grab his heart for people who desperately need salvation. It's going to be hard for us to grasp the compassion and the heart of God that he has for his kids that have not come home yet. Are you guys tracking with me on that? And so we, we got to prioritize the presence of God. We, we, we got to make it a priority to say, man, I know it's tough. I know it's hard to read the Bible sometimes. I know it's hard to, to pray sometimes. We got a lot going on. And, and as a pastor, my heart breaks because I hear that so much. So nobody has time for God. And I know the fight. I know what it's like to, to go through the week and just get swept in the week. And it's like, God, I'm sorry. <laughs> Where were you? How about as a pastor? Like, I'm doing God's work. And how easy it is sometimes to do it without him. Like, I get it. But, guys, we have to prioritize the presence of God as a church. Why? Because in the presence of God, there's revelation. As we open up God's word, the Holy Spirit begins to open up our eyes and our ears to hear again, to feel what the heart of God feels. And there's something about that. When, when, when we get close to God, he begins to work a compassion in our heart. And all of a sudden, it's like stuff that used to matter doesn't matter anymore. Like things that were, were temporary that we were so consumed by, now all of a sudden are, are, are overwhelmed by eternity and this desire to say, man, this is so much bigger than us. Where's the alabaster jar? Bring all the bring all the perfume. Like, let's pour it out. Let's give it all away to Jesus. Let's spend it all on Him. Like, like would you consider what it would be like to spend everything on Him? That would be, as a pastor, something that I would not have to persuade you of. If you would, and I would prioritize the presence of God in our life. God would begin to awaken, begin to stir some things inside of us. And, and the world would be like, man, what, what a waste. And we're sitting back like, what a privilege. What a privilege, God. But, but, but here's the deal. I know it's a struggle. I know it's a struggle. So it means that prioritizing something means we got to pursue it. But it's not a pursuit of striving. Let me take you to Jeremiah. Jeremiah says like this, then you will call on me and, and you will come and pray to me and I will hear your voice and I will listen to you. Then with a deep longing, you will seek me and require me as a vital necessity and you will find me when you search for me with all of your heart. But this is not a, a search of striving, but rather of passion. See, when, when I was pursuing my wife, and Lord knows I was pursuing her hard. I was like, Lord, open her eyes, God. But, but can I just tell you, not, not for one time did, was it like, man, I'm just kind of pursuing this girl. Man, this is, I was like, I will get, I got a tattoo removed. I, I went under pain and laser treatment because I didn't want her dad to look at me and be like, he's a thug. No, right? I was like, whatever it takes, I'll change my clothes. You, my clothes are baggy. I'll, I'll make them skinny. Whatever you want. Whatever you want. 
Because it's the pursuit of passion. I I love this this word search. It it literally means in the Hebrew, a well-worn path toward the object you're pursuing. So I just wonder what life would look like if if we had a well-worn path of obedience despite moments where we don't want to follow Jesus. What if we had a well-worn path of faith in those moments where we just didn't feel like following God? What if we had a a well-worn path of of passion as we pursued the one who has given everything for us? What if we had a a well-worn path of thanksgiving? See, see, as we create this well-worn path, what about a well-worn path of sacrifice? Because sometimes it's not easy. What about a well-worn path of suffering? One of the hardest moments is when you're suffering. And to stay on that search. And the beautiful thing is God's not playing hide and go seek with us. He said, man, when you seek me, you'll find me. But I'm after your heart. I'm after your whole heart. Because when I have your whole heart, life is best lived in that place. And look what God, listen, when God has our whole heart, let me, let me tell you what happens. As we begin to pursue or make this well-worn path toward Christ, as we say, God, I'm going to seek you with all of my heart. God says, you're going to find me. And this is what I'm going to do on the inside of you. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, he says, for it is not your strength. Because some of you guys are thinking right now, like, man, reach people? I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to reach people. <clears throat> But he says, for it is not your strength, but it is God who is effectively at work in you. Like God wants to work in you. He's he's saying, listen, you don't have what it takes. But I do. And what I can work in you, both to will and to work. So right now, you might not feel it. You might not be feeling like, all right, here we go, table of lost people. Let's break bread. And God said, no, I want to work in you the will to work. Like, let me, let me work with you a little bit. Like, trust me with your heart. Let me strengthen you. Let me energize you and create in you the longing and the ability to fulfill your purpose for his good pleasure. Let me work in you. I want to show you a video of a, of a few families from San Francisco that have had to wrestle through this reality that God has called us to go and reach people. Despite some of our uncomfortableness and it's costly, I want you to check this out. When we're thinking about mission and we're thinking about bringing Jesus um, and Jesus' love to people, it's not this sort of theoretical thing like, all right, I want to love the world, um, but there are 20 houses here. Like, that will be our mission field. We're going to try to love this block as well as we can. The mandate was just really clear. This house is for the Lord. It's for community. It's for neighbors. It's for welcoming people in. We're not just a community just to be a community, but we are gathering in the name of Jesus, for the name of Jesus, to live this thing called church out daily. So people will be sitting around here. So this building, the people that are in it are pretty much um, high-tech professionals. So that's what we're trying to do, is try to um, outreach specifically to the building here. We 
committed to having a, a monthly sort of neighborhood barbecue. We invited everyone from, from these 20 houses out to have lunch with us and then start building relationships where we could go back and check in with folks and, and, and knock on their doors and see if there was something that we could um, help with, something we could pray for, or other ways that we could support and love them. And so, yeah, this is not my thing. I'm not a natural hostess. I would much rather in my flesh just have dinners, just our immediate nuclear family. In my flesh, I would not like to clean up after people. And over the years, I think, as we've been part of We Are Church, experiencing it and seeing it in so many of the commandments, it's not you singular. It's to rejoice always, to be generous, to not have greed, um, to love your neighbor as yourself. All those things you can only really practice in community. And so when I came to embrace that, it became this more meaningful communal walk together. So just simply in unity, walking out of our safe house, safe place, going into um, our neighborhood and uh, the intersections and the cities and the coffee shops and talking to the people that live amongst us and work in our neighborhood and you know pray for them and get to know them. So all of the growth we arrived here has come from people who are in our neighborhood on this block. It's been a real joy for us to, to come and encounter that and, and find people who are not just willing to join us for a service, but actually be a part of our family, um, who are a part of the body of the church that we have here. And increasingly, we see it's indispensable. It's just this fellowship is going on and I'm not pushing it. And I felt like with the old model, people aren't gonna reach out unless you create a program for them to do it. People aren't gonna fellowship with each other unless you create some program for that. People aren't gonna get together and pray unless you schedule it for them. Uh, people won't take communion unless you, you know, get all the elements and everything figured out. And now it's just this thing where people are sharing their faith every day. It's just happening. It's natural. They can't help it. A little bit, it's a little bit interesting because what God wants to do in and through you is so much bigger than you could even imagine. But, but if this is going to be a reality in our lives, I just want to give you a couple things because I, I want you to, to walk away with how does the table work on Monday? Like how does it work tomorrow? And, and the first thing, if you're taking notes, I want you to jot this down, is that we first have to make it personal. It's got to be personal. Like when Jesus gave the Great Commission to the disciples to go into the world and make disciples of all nations, all nations, all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that he commanded. And no, Jesus said, on that mission, I'm with you. Like one of the greatest promises that we have in Scripture is that when we're on mission to make disciples, Jesus says, I'm with you. No, I'm with you always, even until the end of the age. Like, that has to become so personal because that just wasn't, you know, Jesus wasn't just deputizing the pastors. In fact, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12, Paul says very clearly, my job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Like, my job isn't to do everything, right? It's, it's to equip you to go out into those highways, into those byways, and see what God might do both in and through you as you go we got to make it personal. 
And I think we can learn like this from Ikea. I kind of roasted Ikea in the beginning of this to say that their tables are getting smaller, right? But Ikea actually provides something that's so beautiful. And it's, it's actually a study that's been done called I- Ikea Syndrome, or the Ikea way, where they're finding that as you open up that Ikea box, anybody ever open up that Ikea box? And you just dump it out and just keeps coming out. So many pieces. So many bolts. Like, I mean, you look, everything's flat, and you're just like, where do I start? Anybody ever put together one of those things? Guys, where are you at? Anybody, ladies? Okay, it's, it's a little bit rough. And sometimes it comes out looking like this. Like, you're like, and you got to do one of these things, like, you know, just to kind of, like, stretch it a little bit. But what they're saying is, is that even though a lot of those things come out a little bit wongo, as we would call it, they, uh, they're, they're such a, an ownership. Like, like somebody comes over and says, hey, bro, your table is bent. It's like, I know, but I built it. <laughs> it's personal. The table is personal. And, and I'm just wondering, listen, if we would, re- if, if we would only realize that the, the table has the, p- the potential to be one of the most missional places in our lives. Like this was such a distinct part of Jesus' ministry, eating with sinners and tax collectors, so much so that he was called names because it was so personal. He was called drunkard. He was called glutton. But this was a sustaining aspect that he was calling you and I in regards to our walk with God for the world is that we have to provide a table for those who are far from God. It was so personal, they called him names, ladies and gentlemen. And, and those names were not just any other names. What they were saying was, you deserve death, bro. Because they were quoting this passage, Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 21, verse 20. They shall say to the elders, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard and deserves death. That's how the religious leaders viewed him. As they're making those statements, it's just not corny statements. No, they're coming back and saying, this is you. You're stubborn and rebellious. The table was such a part of Jesus' ministry. People were coming and they were like, man, this is absurd. This is preposterous. Like, what are you doing, Jesus? And Jesus like, no, this isn't absurd. This is why I came. I came to seek and to save that which is lost. So we got to make it personal. You got to take responsibility of the Great Commission, ladies and gentlemen. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you get a pass on that today. But we're hoping that you come to see the great lengths of what Jesus went through that you might come home, that you might be forgiven. That if you've gone astray in your wayward today, that God says, man, I still have a seat for you at my table. I'm in pursuit of you. <laughs> like you, you thought you came here by accident today, but really I'm pursuing you. And I want you to know that I still have a seat. I still got some food prepared. I got a fresh robe for you. I got some sandals for you. I got a new ring for you. But we got to make it personal, ladies and gentlemen. As a church, it can't just be a good sermon. It's got to be personal. And number two, if you're taking notes, jot this down. The last thing is this, is we got to make it portable. Got to make the table portable and practical. Right? Some of you guys are like, I don't even have a table. Who cares? Starbucks does. And it's free. They even got some nice big wood ones, too. We got to make it practical. We got to make it portable. There's so many different opportunities that we have every single day. Like our serve team is serving every single week. What are they doing here at church? They're preparing a table. They're preparing a table for for people to come every single week who are far from God and eat from God's word. 
I think that that's so beautiful. The table can be portable. It doesn't have to be at your house. It's just creating a space or an environment where, listen, you can give your life away on behalf of Jesus to the world. And there's so many different opportunities. There's opportunities at school. There's opportunities at work. You know, there, there's one gentleman in our church, uh, so special to us. He's a dear part of our family. But two years ago, he wasn't even connected to God at all until a couple from our church walked into a sandwich shop and just started having a conversation with him. Next thing you know, he's at their table for Thanksgiving. At the table, I thought so ironic. It's like Thanksgiving is right here. I talked to him this morning. I said, man, it's, it's, it's a perfect picture of how much God loves you, bro. That a couple years ago, he pursued you as somebody stepped into your place of business, not into a church, not into a house, to a place of business. And said, we got a seat for you, man. And so at that time, he, he went, to, he went they went and had dinner, and the next thing you know, he gets connected to our church. He's serving on our dream team, on our serve team. He's, he's a part of our church family here. Like, you never know who's one invite away. You got to take the table on the road. It's got to be portable. Everywhere we go, there's an opportunity to reach people. And can I just tell you, I know it's so easy to get self-consumed. If you're self-consumed right now, I get it, no judgment but just get closer to Jesus. Lean in in this season. And, and again, like I, I, I get it, I've been in those seasons where I'm just, I'm worried about me. And, and I get it, and God cares about you. So bring your brokenness to the table, let him heal you up, let him bind you up, get a little bit closer, and then let him break off some of those things so that he can once again give you to the world. And can I just tell you that you may say, man, I'm kind of in shambles right now. I'm not really sure. Like, it's going to take a lot of work and fixing. Well, can I just, God can work on the journey. Like, if you're waiting to be like, okay, I'm ready, good luck. Because I'm still at the table and God is working with my brokenness as your pastor. So if, if, if that's a reality for me, I'm sure it's a reality for all of us that we are still a work in progress. God is still working in our hearts. And so don't wait till everything's perfect to reach. God uses imperfect people. God uses imperfect tables to reach people. So let me, let me, let me close with this. One of my favorite pictures is a picture of this tree. It's, it's a mother's citrus tree and it's going to come up on the screen right now. There it is. It's a mother, it's, it's called the mother's citrus tree. It's the first orange tree that was planted in California. Like you thought orange trees were native here, but they're not. Citrus is not native to California. This was imported in, in the 1800s to Oroville, California from Mazatlan, from Mexico. And this guy decided, man, I'm going to plant a tree here, an orange tree. And it was so cool because it was time, it was during the time where, um, you know, this tree just experienced a whole lot of stuff. Like it, it survived the gold rush. The time of the gold rush is, you know, miners were coming from all over trying to get rich. It, it survived freezes. And if you know anything about Oroville, it floods all the time. It survived floods. And, and just for, for over, you know, a hundred years, this thing has been giving fruits away to people. It was said that miners would come from all over just to eat from this tree, all because one man decided to do what nobody had ever done, is to plant a citrus tree in California in a region that didn't know citrus. And to this day, it stands still producing fruit, still producing fruit. So, so my question today is this, like what would happen if you just did what nobody else has done 
in your neighborhood, in your area of influence, and you just created a table. You planted a table. I wonder how many would come and eat of its fruit. That they would taste and see that the Lord is good. He didn't know what was going to happen with this tree. Just planted a citrus. Ended up bringing life to so many people far beyond his livelihood. I mean, he's, he's gone, but the tree is still producing fruit. Can I just tell you, ladies and gentlemen, we need to start thinking legacy. We need to start thinking beyond ourselves. They say this, they say, go big or go home. We say go big so that others can come home. Let me pray with you.